Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Uh, yeah, that'd be me. Thank you very much. How do you do? Beautiful day here in Pittsburgh, she said sarcastically. Uh, so, uh, lots to talk about, but then that's been the case since uh, a certain orange-haired blob took the oath of office. Um, I want to, well, no, let me start today. I'm sorry, just a little I want to go on record, since I just heard about this, I want to go on record as being inalterably opposed uh, to this, uh, although I think this is happening. Uh, there, let's just get to the point. Floating tiki bars, okay? Dear God, first of all, tacky, tacky tiki tiki floating bars. Um, boats. <laughs> Tacky tiki floating bar boats. I think I got it now. Uh, this is a story that's in the local Pittsburgh paper. For those of you not here, just want to get this off my chest, apparently. Um, this summer, uh, people will be able to board a floating tiki bar boat and uh, float around, zip around uh, the three rivers while uh, drinking up whatever it is they, they want to drink. Um, this is an idea that comes out of Florida where tiki bars you know, make some sense in the general environment. Right, right. Because uh, if you saw a picture of these things, you know it's a it's a grass thatched hut thing with tiki torches. And 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 I hate to tell you this, but tiki torches have sort of undergone a makeover since they were um, used by the Nazis in Charlottesville. Right. Every time I see a tiki torch now, I just sort of cringe. So this is a thing that I guess you can see in Florida, where it makes some sense, although it's still tacky. And the guy who invented <laughs> invented these is um, franchising them, and somebody here in Pittsburgh has scarfed up uh, the Pittsburgh franchise. And we're going to have uh, these floating tiki bars on our rivers uh, this summer. I got to tell you, that is so, I mean, just envision it. It is so not Pittsburgh. It is so not Pittsburgh. We do tacky in our own way, and this is not the way we do tacky. In fact... When these things started up in Florida, uh, the I think it was in Fort Lauderdale, their uh, local city paper equivalent, their local alt-weekly, uh, raved about it and said, it's the most Florida thing ever. 
I rest my case. It's the most Florida thing ever, and Pittsburgh is about as far from Florida in any way that you could imagine. And please, I hope this thing sinks. I guess there's going to be two of them. Damn. So that's just, that was upsetting to me. I know we have to be ready for change. Change is constant. <coughs> but floating tiki bars with little thatched huts on the Mon is like so wrong. It's just wrong. Uh, my son uh, last night directed me to a thread, for those of you who um, aren't on Twitter, uh, a thread is a, a group of tweets that are threaded together, uh, thus uh, getting around any limit on how many characters can be used, and you can essentially write the great American novel like that in a in a thread on, on Twitter. Um, and... Since he sent it to me, I know it's been making the rounds. It's all over the place. This is a posting by a a guy named Dylan Curran uh, somewhere in uh, Great Britain. And he is, because I looked him up, he is a um, a technical consultant and a web developer. And... Uh, he has a whole ton of followers, so he must be somebody that is uh, reputable. And apparently this thread is a pre precursor to uh, a big story that's going to be, I guess, I think he said, in The Guardian. Um, and he prefaces this by saying, do you want to freak yourself out? Well... I mean, I freak easy, uh, floating tiki bars freaked me out, but this might really, in a more serious way, uh, freak anybody who who uses one of these or one of these. Uh, because we all have this sense, and especially since the Cambridge Analytica and Facebook stuff, that, that these these guys and this thing, these gizmos, are aggregating extraordinary amounts of information about anyone who employs them. And uh, this guy just wanted to bring it home to us. So he went into his own accounts um, to tell us. I, I don't know that I'm going to do all of it for you, but there is no way to read his thread and not feel dread. And dread that makes sense to feel. We are so close to living in uh, an episode of Black Mirror. If you have ever seen that, that's also coming out of the UK. <laughs> it's a terrifying, dramatic uh, look at where this technology is, is taking us. So this guy, let, please let me just share this, some of this with you, because we need to know, you need to know this. 
he says, for instance, you go to Google. I don't know. I Google stuff. I Googled like two things yesterday, okay? On an average day, I don't. But uh, in a week, I use Google four times, let's say, on average. And you add that up, it's quite a bit. Google stores your location every time you turn on your phone. And you can see a timeline from the first day you started using Google on your phone. They literally, every one of us, they have such extraordinary, de more detail than, you know, than you or I have on ourselves. Um, and he looked at his own timeline and he said, it literally is every place I have been in the last 12 months in Ireland going in so far as the time of day I was in that location and how long it took me to get to that location from my previous location. He goes on to say Google stores your entire search history across all your devices on a separate database so that even if you were to delete I don't want to have anything more to do with this, and I'm getting out. Even if you were to delete your search history, your phone history, Google still stores everything until you go in and delete everything, and you would have to do this on all your devices. Uh, we know that Google, Facebook, and all these others make their money from advertisers, and Google takes all of this information to create an advertisement profile for you and you and you and you and you and me and it's based on all this information they have about you your location your gender your age your hobbies your career your interests your relationship status your possible weight your income on and on and on Google stores information on every app and extension that you use how often you use them, where you use them, and who you use them to interact with. Even what time, they know what time you go to sleep, what time you wake up. Google stores all of your YouTube history. <laughs> so they know whether you're going to be a parent soon, if you're a conservative, if you're a progressive, if you're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, if you're feeling depressed or suicidal, if you're anorexic. And Google, and this is just Google he's talking about. We haven't gotten to Facebook and some of the others. Google offers an option to download all of the data it stores about you. So if you want to see this for yourself, you can do that. And he has requested Google uh, that information, and he downloaded it, and he said the file is 5.5 gigabytes big, which is roughly, get this, 3 million word documents. That's just on him, his Google data. Three million Word documents worth. And he says when he looked at his link, it includes every bookmark I ever made, emails, contacts, your Google Drive files, all of the above information, your YouTube videos, the photos you've taken on your phone, the businesses you've bought, bought from, the products you have bought 
through Google, your calendar, your Google Hangout sessions, your location history, the music you listen to, the Google books you've purchased, the Google groups you're in, the websites you've created, the phones you've owned, the pages you've shared, how many steps you walk in a day if you've got, you know, a fit thingamajig watch device on you. Facebook offers, now he's on to Facebook, Facebook offers a similar option to download all your information. Okay, his Facebook one was not quite as huge as his Google one. And that would include, Facebook has on you every message you've ever sent or been sent, every file you've ever sent or been sent, all the contacts in your phone, all the audio messages you've ever sent or been sent, Facebook also stores what it thinks you might be interested in based uh, on the things you liked and what you and your friends talk about. And then he sees his list. He says, I apparently like the topic of girls. Somewhat pointlessly, he says, they also store every emoji you have ever used. They store every time you log into Facebook, where you logged in from, what time, from what device. And they store all the applications you've ever had connected to your Facebook account. So they can guess, I'm interested in politics and web and graphic design, that I was single between so-and-so and so-and-so, and and that I got a certain phone in November. Side note, he says, if you have Windows 10 installed, And then he posts a picture of just the privacy options on Windows 10. It's huge. There are 16 different sub-menus which have all the options enabled by default. You cannot, I mean, so if you got Windows 10, there's a tracking device of where you are, what applications you've installed, when you use them, what you've used them for, access to your webcam and microphone at any time, your contacts, your emails, your call history, the messages you send and receive, the files you download, the games you play, your photos, videos, your music, your search history, your browsing history, even what radio stations you listen to. And this is one of the craziest things he says about the modern age. We would never let the government or a corporation (laughs) put cameras and microphones in our homes or location trackers on us. But almost all of us have gone ahead and did it ourselves. Because as he says, fuck it, I want to watch cute dog videos. He then looked at the breakdown of, I mean, this goes on and on and on. It is frightening. He goes on, he says, this is my Google Drive, which includes files I explicitly deleted, including my resume, my monthly budget, and all the code files and websites I've ever made, and even my private key, which I deleted, which I use to encrypt emails. They have it all. Because he has a Google Fit, they know everything about him when he, medita- when he meditates, blah, 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 blah. All the photos he's ever taken broken down by year and includes metadata of when and where he took the photos, every email he's ever sent. Um, 
Okay, so this goes on. I'm not going to... Thank you. Uh, good. So that thread has now been posted on my Facebook. <laughs> um, and uh, I thank you, uh, Amy, for doing that. Um, so if you want to just see this yourself, <laughs> if you're on Facebook, go ahead. They know everything anyway. And here's the thing. This is all we do this because one of the things we value so much in this world is convenience, right? That's what we've been taught to value. Convenience, ready access, immediacy. We want to know what we want to know, when we want to know it. We want instant access, blah, 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 blah. And this is what they give us. But what they take from us is so much bigger. But it's just so they can target the advertisers to you. Oh, yeah, right. And I give you Cambridge Analytica. And I give you probably every modern political campaign now. Um, the ability to literally pinpoint to the person uh, who you want to target for a politician, for a corporation, for the government, anybody, anybody. We have literally said, here I am, take everything, everything. And they have. Now, a former governor of Indiana happened today to write a, an op-ed uh, in the New York Times, I believe. No, the Washington Post. And it's titled, Someone is Watching You. Um, he is currently president of Purdue uh, University, and he starts with, isn't technology wonderful? And he goes on to say that just at Purdue, that university, and you have to figure any university, has an IT infrastructure that enables the administration at Purdue to literally know absolutely everything about their students as well. And he says, you know, we use this. We can tell if a student is, um, where, when they're eating, where they're eating, because in order to get food or use the gym, they swipe in, and they all have their little cards, and a machine captures where they are at any time, when they were there. They can figure who they were there with. He said, forget that old ominous line, we know where you live. <laughs> he said, because we know more than that. We know literally where you are at any moment. So this is the university on top of Facebook, Google, and everybody else. And um, he says, of course, we delve into this treasure trove of information about our students. And he says, and we're doing it for what we think of as uh, you know, really good reasons for the benefit of the students. Uh, 
So if we can see that a student is uh, has many absences from a class or he's browsing too much during class on a website or, or, uh, <coughs> or he's eating meals with the same people day after day and um, his scholastic performance is going down, they have started like what they call nudging individual students with helpful little things like, did you know that students who wait as long as you did to sign up for courses are more likely to struggle? The registrar's office opens up at 8 a.m. tomorrow. Okay, so that's, you could say, well, that's helpful for a kid who, you know, like a lot of kids do, procrastinates, doesn't get, and so, but they're able to see. So he says, isn't that wonderful? He says, but, you know, that's today. And we're working in what we think are the best interests of the students. But when does what we call a nudge become a shove? And he says, we really don't even have to theorize about that now because it's already happening. And he tells us this. And take this in now, okay? The future is already now, and it is in China. China for those billions of people, all of them plugged in, who live in that world power, China has and has instituted what is called a social credit system. Now, in order to be on the social credit system, you volunteer to be on it now. But guess what? It's going, that voluntary aspect is going away in a year and a half. So that by 2020, every human being in China will, whether they want to or not, be on what is called their social credit system. And they will be able to see all of this information that I'm, t literally be able to see where you are, who you're with, what you do, what you're interested in, and all that stuff. And the government's going to pour over this stuff. And the way the social credit system works in China is citizens who conform to governmentally approved behaviors will earn a high ranking. You literally get a numerical ranking. And if you are, by nature, a contrarian, if you are a nonconformist, if you are not living in the lockstep as the Chinese government would have you live, well, you're going to get a really low number. And it will have consequences. Other than the fact that, of course, the government will have you on a list. Watch this person. They're trouble. So all the ones with high scores, the good ones, the good citizens, the rule followers, the conformists, they will get all kinds of preferences. They will get rewards. They will get, for instance, VIP hotel rooms and air travel and better schools for their children. If you 
if they uh, if you play video games, you'll have deductions. If you spend your money on work clothes and you pay your bills on time, you will get higher rates. And to protect your higher rating, you want to be sure you never say anything negative about the powers that be. Don't even exhibit skepticism about the government in your digital life or be linked to anybody else who has or does. And this system, which will be fully operative, mandatory, in China in a year and a half, is designed, of course, it's 19... I mean, it's... Here we are! It's Black Mirror, guys. And uh, the phrase that one uh, person who uh, has written about it says, it's gamified obedience. We're all now... I mean, you know, we're just pawns in their game. Well, it really is a game now, and we pawns are being watched and measured and ranked and rated and <laughs> when are we going to wake up to this and even if we do is it already too late for the folks in China I would say uh, yeah apparently it is and here is Mitch Daniel former governor now president of Purdue saying hey guys this subject <laughs> This reality here, this needs a highly public examination sooner, not later, like immediately. We have the data already. We know what's going on. And we know this stuff could be used for the good, but we also know, come on, and we've already seen it can be used by governments and by bad actors to disrupt our lives, to corrupt our elections and our democracy, and to force conformity on us. Uh, he says, many of us are going to have to stop and ask whether it's enough to have good intentions about what all of these wonderful things are supposed to be doing for us. And at what point our individual autonomy should have higher standing than the data. If that ain't sobering, I don't know what is. Seriously. So, I mean, I think a lot of us who are not um, technologically inclined 
Uh, we've, you know, heard, oh, well, this does this, and they aggregate that, and there's algorithms. And we were slow to understand. But you have to be willfully blind now not to see where this is taking us. Or you have to be extremely naive or trusting to think that it will not be used for ill. I remember getting in a big argument with a friend of my brother's. He was some visiting professor at the University of Michigan, I think, and he was an Israeli. And he this is a long time ago, and he was an expert in like internet law as much as it existed at the time or you know IT or something and he was saying and I've always been you know skeptical about where this stuff is heading and I was being skeptical with him and I remember him you know very articulately and because he obviously knew a hell of a lot more than me telling me that this was going I said it's going to allow governments to you know it's I, I was seeing like China what's going on there and he said, no, 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 this will allow people power. This will allow democracy to flourish. This will, and this was like before the Arab Spring. And when the Arab Spring started up, remember, we were all saying, oh, wow, look at this. This would not have been possible without, without this. These things are being organized by these young people just on this. A government can't do anything about it. Well, that was then. This is now, and I think we have a clearer idea of how this is going to work. And uh, I'd like to have a conversation with that guy now. I feel a little more sure of my myself. I don't care how many PhDs he has. Uh, but as I look at my emails, uh, back to the tiki, uh, floating tiki bars, <laughs> and God bless them, because this is what used to constitute news back in an easier time. Lynn says, I like the idea of the floating boats. <laughs> When I lived in Pittsburgh and my mother came to visit, we went to one of those bars behind the warehouse district. I remember those. We sat on the banks of the Allegheny while the steel drum band played for us on a barge in the river, and we sipped beer and those umbrella drinks. Mom said it was a highlight of her trip. All right. Well, I can't take that wonderful thing away from you. But just the visual. I'm talking about the visual. Think of all the glorious pictures of Pittsburgh and the three rivers. And then imagine a bunch of friggin' grass huts floating around with drunks on them. Dave writes, I agree the tiki bars are a very tacky idea. They will not sell alcohol. You only rent the boat and bring your own. Yeah, I know. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, you bring your own booze. I think they will not be successful and they are sure to fail. Well, we'll find out. I agree. I think they'll go down too. I'm telling you, you won't see me on one. 
Uh, not that I want any entrepreneur and somebody who has put money into a business thinking that they're going to get rich. I just, I'm sorry. Uh-uh. I don't like it. I don't care about Lynn's mother's wonderful experience. Okay. Have I terrified you all? I hope so. I really do. I hope so. Uh, what else I got here? What else I got here? I got, um, oh, the the census thing. Now, I, if you, some of you will remember that I actually brought this census thing up months and months ago when I saw something somewhere that there was some people pushing <laughs> that the census include this citizenship uh, question. And uh, the people pushing it were all Republicans. And because if Republicans are good at anything, I mean, we they are good at uh, marginalizing certain populations, and they are good at... Um, making it more difficult for people to vote or to be engaged or to feel part of the community. Um, there is no doubt that a question about citizenship on, a, on the census will uh, push already terrified, undocumented people who live here, who work here, uh, into the shadows. It also means that the count will be tainted. Um, the count is not for citizens and non-citizens. The count is for human beings who are residing in a certain area. That's all it is intended to do so that voting districts can be apportioned properly, something Republicans don't want. And they certainly don't want because a lot of Hispanics and other undocumented people are living on our coasts. And those coasts are, there's a lot of democratic or liberal states. So the Republicans don't want these people being counted because who knows, you could end up adding, having to add a congressional district in New York or in California. And if you scare them all so you don't count them, why, you could end up taking away a district, a reliably democratic district. I think they're being a little short-sighted about this because I know that there are many red states that have um, experienced large influxes of, um, of immigrants and many of whom are not documented. So maybe this would backfire and cost a Republican district or two, but it's so cynical. It's so... Anyway, uh, the number of states uh, that are suing about this is growing by leaps and bounds, including uh, Pennsylvania, uh, joining with New York and California, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Rhode Island, Washington State. All of them are 
going to sue to stop this. Whether or not they're able to um, remains to be seen. As usual, um, what's her name, Huckabee Sanders, uh, lied through her teeth uh, yesterday in the press briefing about, uh, about this and about uh, the history of whether or not these questions have uh, been on the uh, regular census form before. Um, I have an idea, and I'm just going to float it out there. If the question ends up being on the form, I think we need a, well, here's where the Internet's good. <laughs> we need to organize and make sure that if asked the citizenship question, we documented citizens of the United States answer no comment. And if everybody answers no comment, then an undocumented person can say no comment as well and it won't look suspicious. Um, I think we all need to say no comment, refuse to answer the question. Wouldn't that, uh, wouldn't that do the trick? I think it would. I do. So uh, stay tuned. I mean, we don't know exactly. Oh, my God. How, I'm sorry, I'm looking at my... Um, we, we don't know if it's going to prevail or not. Okay. So... I'm going to avoid the Stormy Daniels front, if you don't mind. But, uh, man, that attorney of hers, he's moving. So he's got a... There's a case already before a federal judge in... Um, is it a federal court? Yeah. I believe a federal court in uh, California uh, in which he says he wants to depose. He wants to depose uh, both the president and uh, his attorney. Uh, what's his name? Cohen. Uh, and a judge will have to rule on whether or not they can be. Um, obviously, there is a precedent in that Bill Clinton, as a sitting president, was deposed in regard to Monica Lewinsky. Um, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I mean, all of this is going to play out. A lot of people who know a lot more than I do about legalities and the court system say that, man, uh, you know, Stormy Daniels in this case really could take down this president before Mueller <laughs> because there ain't no way that Donald Trump can be questioned in this case without having to either tell the truth, which will not be something he has done yet, or he's going to have to lie. And of course, if he lies, under oath, he's gotten himself in some serious trouble. So, yes, it's a trap, but it's a trap that's set by existing legal parameters. And it wouldn't be a trap if he and his attorney were telling the truth. 
that this whole thing never happened and that they never paid hush money and all of that, right? As to um, as to whether or not Donald Trump used thug-like tactics to intimidate uh, people who would sue him or potentially cause him trouble, I mean the record is the historical record is pretty damn clear. He has in the past as has uh, his attorney. And uh, some of the instances that now are being uh, remembered include 2009, when one of Trump's wonderful business ventures, a casino (laughs) in New Jersey, uh, was declaring bankruptcy. And a lawyer who was representing a whole bunch of the investors who had given Donald Trump their money to open this casino were suing him because they were standing to lose a ton of money. And the lawyer for these investors got a phone call. And the guy on the other end said, if you keep messing with Mr. Trump, although it says he didn't say messing, okay, we know where you live. (laughs) There it is again. We know where you live, and we're going to your house for your wife and kids. This is 2009, an attorney representing investors in a Donald Trump bankrupting casino gets a phone call. Stop messing with Mr. Trump. And threatening their wives and children. Here's another interesting aspect. This attorney went to the FBI. And he said... "I." My clients are are being uh, truly threatened. Their families and children are being threatened. And so the FBI went to work on it. You know what they found? Listen to this. This is too good. The FBI found that the phone call was made from a telephone booth. Remember those? Made from a telephone booth across from the Ed Sullivan Theater in Manhattan, where Donald Trump was a guest on The Late Show with David Letterman. The call from the phone booth in front of the theater where Donald Trump was made immediately before the Tonight Show, or not the Tonight, the Late Show with David Letterman, on which Donald Trump was a guest. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one. There's more. 
July 2015. Uh, the Daily Beast, which is a uh, online uh, magazine, I don't know what you call them, blog, whatever. Uh, it, it's a journalistic organ. <laughs> the Daily Beast reported on a book about the Trumps that recounted something that was generally, I think, known, or maybe this was the first time it was outed, that during the divorce from his first wife, Ivana, which would have been 25 years uh, prior, that she said that in a rage he had once raped her. And the reporter from the Daily Beast who wrote that story got a phone call. And it was from the attorney, Michael Cohen. And here is what he said. The attorney. I will take you for every penny you still don't have. And I will come after your daily beast and everybody else that you possibly know. You write a story that has Mr. Trump's name in it with the word rape and I'm going to mess your life up. You're going to have judgments against you. So much money, you'll never know how to get out from underneath it. That was part of the rant. So, Stormy Daniels saying that she felt intimidated and she was threatened once in a parking lot and again on a phone it seems like she is not suggesting something that is not out of the the realm of uh, believability uh, given what we know historically about how Donald Trump and his attorney uh, comport themselves when people are making them uncomfortable. Wow. Oh, you remember that phrase about the speedy wheels of justice or something? They ain't speedy enough, I'll tell you. This guy... This unbelievable, horrible human being who is the President of the United States. There is so much we already have on him that we can't dislodge him. It's just, it is maddening, isn't it? It really is maddening. There's never been, I mean, uh, never, well, okay, I'll just stop. Unbelievable. So, opening day is like around the corner? Is it Monday? I think it is. I don't know. I won't be there. I never go to opening days. It's too much of a thing. And uh, whatever. It's usually cold. And now, 
I feel for the players. I just feel for the players and other people uh, in the organization who have no power. And I feel for the fans. And um, I had tickets. I was in a group when we got together, so we had some good seats, and we split up the games we went to. I had tickets for years and years and years and years and years, and I... I'm out. And I had tickets even before that, back when they were at Three Rivers, and I had tickets because I I sort of looked on them as a charity. <laughs> well, you give to charity, I thought. You can give to the Pirates because, you know, you don't want them leaving town. You'd like them to stay and see better days. But I, I bring this up just because um, there was a baseball... Uh, connected story in the Wall Street Journal the other day that has a Western Pennsylvania um, connection. And I, th I think some of you maybe know this already. I think I sort of did, not in the detail that I, that I do now. But um, the dirt, <laughs> the dirt on the infield, you know, there's grass on a baseball uh, field, diamond, and then there's dirt. There's dirt and there's grass. And uh, the dirt, I mean, for a million years, not for a, over a hundred years that baseball was played, was just dirt. It was the dirt that, you know, was there. You throw some dirt on. That's not the case anymore. Nothing is simple anymore, right? Everything has been parsed down to the absolute uh, science of it. So that now major league teams pay money. They pay money for just the right mixture of sand and clay and silt and who knows what else. It all adds up to dirt. They pay tens of thousands of dollars just the right dirt in the infield. And do you know that most, the majority of major league baseball teams, you know where they get that just perfect dirt? From a company in Slippery Rock. For those of you who don't live here, it's about 45, 50 miles from here. Slippery Rock! Yeah! And the 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 company in Slippery Rock uses some local clay, oh, and then they do stuff with it. It's secret recipe stuff, so they ain't exactly telling you. But um, I mean, it can cost. Uh, who knows? So it isn't dirt, and the anymore. It's 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 very special stuff. And so now, what the people who purvey this dirt say their dirt makes it less likely that a player's cleat will get stuck and consequently maybe make them twist their ankle in a way that puts them out of commission. Uh, their dirt is such 
that if there's a sudden shower that doesn't cause a rain delay, but if there's water in on the dirt, it will not turn to mud. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, th- this outfit, it's called Duraedge, out of um, out of Slippery Rock, uh, supplies a thirty of the major league uh, baseball teams. I mean, the vast majority of major league baseball. And uh, I, I mean, there's people who have PhDs now in you know in soil in science dirt. <laughs> And so now groundskeepers, uh, you know, can go around and probe the various parts of their infields with sensors that monitor moisture and other stuff. You can't imagine. But I just wanted to say, if you're watching a baseball game played almost anywhere, just to give yourself some some pride, that dirt... In the infield, ladies and gentlemen, that's Western Pennsylvania dirt. Okay. What else I got here? We've talked on, um, oh, I know what I got. Hang on. Well, maybe I don't. I'm not going to do that, but I'll save it for tomorrow because I want to do more with it. Um, but it's it's it allows me to rant about my one of my biggest targets um, over the years, and that's helicopter parents. But in the time we have left, I don't want to shortchange myself because, you know, I just love going to town on them. Um, instead, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a, a book, and it's uh, written by a journalist who uh, talks about uh, gender uh, and and the office and how women struggle to get an equal footing and. She plums all these studies that have been done, and the studies blow your mind. They really do. Because it shows how ingrained this stuff is that keeps women out of leadership positions. And we've talked about this kind of thing before. But my God, how it's a man's world. Do you know when you walk into office, like I'm in a, on the 22nd floor of an office building now in which you couldn't open a window if you wanted to, right? So the air in here has been here since the building went up. <laughs> it's stale as holy hell. And it's regulated. I mean, the temperature of the rooms is, you know, regulated uh, overall by building staff. And do you know there's a standard office temperature? Yeah, mm-hmm. And they arrived at the standard office temperature so that a 154-pound suit-wearing 
man would be comfortable. So like in the summer when the women in the office are freezing because they're wearing, you know, uh, thinner clothes and maybe sleeveless clothes, the men are still wearing their jackets. Anyway, so just there. I mean, it's a man's world, right? Women just don't factor in. And she bolsters all of these seemingly unbelievable claims with tons of data. And I'm just going to give you some of the claims. Female executives, once a woman actually gets into the executive position, female executives make more profitable acquisitions and take on less debt than male executives. Oh, well, if I were on the board of directors, I would find that sort of interesting. Not that you're supposed to discriminate based on gender, but uh, apparently women are good for the bottom line. And indeed, firms with the most female board members outperform those with the least number of female board members by almost every financial measure you come up with. Also, companies whose top management is at least half female. Must be about two of those. Post returns on equity that are 18% higher than average. Okay. So uh, every study shows the more women you have in positions of authority, the better your bottom line is going to be. But the problem is the cultural bias against us is so overwhelming. She quotes a study done by Carnegie Mellon. big shocker, that when an equal number of job-seeking men and women visited 100 recruitment sites, men were shown positions for the highest paying job six times more often than the women were. And this is equal, you know, this is people with the same resume. In the early 90s, more than half of law school students were women. The early 90s. So the the thing is, well, women aren't in the higher positions because um, they're just not in the pipeline. They're just starting to be in the pipeline. Okay, in the early 90s, half of law school's uh, students were women. So that pipeline's pretty full of women. So you would think that women would constitute... uh, a pretty big percentage of partners in law firms now, uh, huh, management uh, positions and all that kind of thing. Uh, well, sorry. Women hold 17% of those kinds of jobs after being in the goddamn pipeline, okay? Okay. Women are 15% less likely to get promoted than men. And here's what, if you ask the guys who promote people, why did you promote him? They will say, we see great potential in him. They never say that about a woman. 
women are never promoted because someone sees potential. If a woman gets promoted and you ask the guy who promoted her why, they will always say her performance. She's proven. She's proven she's good. Of course I'm going to promote her. Whereas guys who haven't proven they're good get promoted because, well, they just sort of feel that they have, you know, potential. And I'll leave you with one last and totally depressing thing, but we've talked about this before too, that women are biased against women as well. Uh, that there's a self-annihilating thing that goes on with women. Uh, most women would rather work for a male than another woman. It's built in. It's just built in. I just wanted to share those stats with you because, you know, guys, you don't recognize the privilege. You don't because it's just the way things are. And women don't always know why they get passed over. And the people who pass them over don't even know why. It's that ingrained. And yet when women get into these positions, they're shown over and over and over again not to just be capable, but often to be more capable. Just saying. All right, that's it for me for the moment. Um, and uh, have a good one, and I'll see you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.